And so Debbie's not in the room, so she's not going to get too mad at me. But um, I decided to change around the entire outline this morning um, and move some verses to next week. And I guess that's kind of what happens when you finish your outline on Monday at like noon. Um, but on a positive note, I feel like that takes care of our introduction. Yeah? I don't have to think of any clever story. Like, we're good. We're introduced. I changed the outline. Um, by way of warning, we're going to touch on some sensitive and moderately explicit topics this morning. So if you haven't yet had those conversations with your children, just be aware. It'll show up at around verses 19 through 20. And, um, and for all of you note takers, the new outline is going to be uh, point one will be imitate me, verse 17. Point two will be because many have walked away, verses 18 through 19. And point three will be because our citizenship is in heaven, verses 20 through 4. One. So let's jump in. Introductions are all done. Let's see what the text has for us. Verse 17 in chapter 3 of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me. If not, you can look at um, the passage. It is in the bulletin as well. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so imitation has been a common theme throughout our time in this letter. Paul is asking us to imitate him. Paul is asking us to imitate Christ. Paul is asking us to imitate Timothy and Epaphroditus. There's all sorts of imitation. In fact, this is a theme in Paul in general. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11:1 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Um, Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ. And so it's really interesting. In the mind of Paul, imitation is not simply just imitating God but it's imitating one another as we look toward people who are imitating Christ. And so this is the beauty of how the church works. We imitate one another as we imitate Christ. And that's really important for us to understand. Like, I'm not saying that we should imitate one another when we're not imitating Christ. Like, I shouldn't look for, like, all the most grievous sins in our church and say, I'm going to imitate that. Like, that's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's saying, those people who are following Jesus in your midst, they serve as an example of what it means to follow him. Go and do likewise. Imitate them. So based on this verse and the other passages in Paul's letters, Paul is commanding his readers to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Additionally, he is commanding them to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's two commands that he gives right at the forefront of this particular passage. Imitate and keep your eyes. And the point is that Paul wants his brothers and sisters in Philippi to follow Jesus. That's what he's desiring of them. That's what he's commanding of them, to follow Jesus. And then he's giving some tangible examples as to how to do that. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at the passage about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He, looked that, he lifted them up as examples for what life as a citizen of heaven ought to look like. 
In fact, if we move a little bit further back in the letter, Paul offered what we've been referring to as a master story that ought to be followed. The one who was in the form of God, but who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain. That picture of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 is the pattern that marks the life of a citizen of heaven. Self-giving love, sacrificial love, Caring for others' needs above our own is the pattern of the master story. It's a pattern of God-glorifying and others-centered love. And that's what this book has been all about. In fact, we've noticed as we've traveled through this letter that that master story in Philippians chapter 2 reaches into all the facets of this particular letter. It's everywhere. And so we learn that in order to imitate Christ, we need to be humble. We need to not exalt ourselves. We need to exalt others. We need to look to the needs of others above ourselves. We need to value the things of Christ. We need to not concern ourselves with suffering when we compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And that shows up everywhere throughout the letter. And what's interesting, and we've talked about this in the past, over the last number of weeks, is that that master story sits at the absolute center of the letter. Now, that's intentional on Paul's part. He's drawing our attention toward that particular story, the story of Christ. It is a cross-shaped life. To be a citizen of heaven is to be marked by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so a couple of things to kind of reorient ourselves. We need to remember, as we're heading through this passage, um, some, some issues of context, right? Paul is writing from prison. He's in jail because of his belief and commitment to the gospel of Jesus. What we learn about Paul is that his entire life is about, one, the glory of God, and two, the good of his neighbors, meaning that he is willing and is presently suffering and experiencing all sorts of shame and subjugation so that those two goals are met. And not only is he experiencing those things, but he offers us Epaphroditus, who is also experiencing similar things. In other words, if we're sitting here and thinking, well, Paul, of course, you're willing to go through all of this for Jesus. You're the Apostle Paul. What Paul is conveying to them by citing these common examples, and we've talked about this, that one of their very own, a regular guy from the neighborhood, is going through similar difficulties with the same two goals in mind, the glory of God and the good of his neighbors. And so what Paul is telling the Philippians, he's saying, imitate me, imitate those who are doing what I am doing, Because we are both seeking to embody and imitate the master story of King Jesus. And so what's the point? If we're all imitating the king, and the king in love laid aside all power, privilege, authority, and ultimately his life, then the kingdom that this king represents is a kingdom shaped by the cross, which was the epitome of shame in the ancient world. A lot of review here this morning. But before we get there, I want to continue to challenge 
I want to continue challenging you with the same thing I challenged with you a few weeks ago. Who are the tangible, real-life examples that you can look to? And what areas of your life need to be conformed to the cross of Christ? We've got to wrestle with that stuff. We have to wrestle with that stuff. And what I love about Paul and what he's trying to convey and what he's been conveying throughout the entire letter is that this, this thing that we call Christianity, it's not, it's not a solo sport. It's a team sport. We need one another to make this work. We need one another. We need the encouragement of one another. We need the challenge of one another. We need the conviction that we experience when we look at one another and they're living a life that's, that's more conformed to the pattern of Christ than maybe our own is. And we need the example of one another so that we might have those tangible models that we can look to. Christianity is about the church. It's about all of us in this together seeking to demonstrate to the world what Jesus is like. And what Jesus is like is articulated in Philippians chapter 2, that master story, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the text continues, verses 18 through 19. It says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So what Paul does in this particular section is he gives us the why behind his command to be imitators. If you'll notice, verse 18 begins with the word for. Now, in, in the Greek, that word is gar. Right? And that's, that's, a, that's a signal word that tells us that what is about to be spoken of is, is the reason for what is above. It's, it, it grounds the command. And so what, what Paul is saying, he's saying, imitate me and keep your eyes on the example that you have in us. Why? Because there are a lot of people who are not doing that. And, and I don't want you to fall into the trap that they're falling into. He gives us a reason why he gives this command. Paul is providing the reason. He's grounding his command in the negative example that he's about to go through. And the reason being, because there are many who walk as enemies of the cross. And the question we have to wrestle with is, what does it mean to walk as enemies of the cross? He gives us a few examples, but I think we could even expand this a little bit. Because what is the cross? The cross is the means by which God is drawing all people unto himself. It is the means by which he, 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 he rescued sinful humanity from their sin and offered them a path to eternal life with him. And it is also a demonstration of self-sacrificial love. And so when he says that these particular people walk as enemies of the cross, what he's telling us is that these particular people, they don't understand that love is the means by which the world is going to come back to Christ. They don't understand that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. They don't understand that it's about others, not them. And so these particular people, what do they do? They worship themselves. It says their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But really quickly, before we get there, notice that Paul conveys this information how? With tears. With tears. He's not just giving a warning, 
although he is, it appears that he's also mourning the loss of something or better, someone. He says this with tears. He's not gloating. Too many times we gloat in the sin of our enemies, you know, to use that word carefully. We look at the world and, and, and we mock sin. But see, Paul is talking about these people with tears. He's devastated by it. He's devastated by it. See, Paul no doubt has specific people in mind. Generalized groups of people don't make us cry. Right? They just don't. I mean, something might tug on our heartstrings a little bit, but, but we don't sit in tears over someone that we've heard about you know, across the country. It might shake us up a little bit, but it says, he says this with tears. We cry when the people we love are in trouble, when they lose their way, when they go from family to enemy. I'm not here to get into a debate about eternal security. That's not what this text is about. What it is about is Paul's grief over those who once appeared to be with him, who claimed the name of Christ, who maybe were even baptized by Paul himself, who now walk as enemies of the cross, who live in complete contradiction to the faith they once claimed. The text is unclear as to the identity of this group, and I sometimes wonder if that's intentional. Because all of us are probably coming up with a mental picture of a particular person that has walked away from the faith, that has become an enemy of the cross. And that's something we mourn. That's not something we revel in. Paul mourned it. Paul weeps over it. Follow him as he follows Christ. We need to weep over sin. We need to weep over those who have gone astray, who've lost their way. And, and we're allowed to do that. In fact, it seems that we're commanded to because Paul says, imitate him. And then he tells us that he's weeping over these people. And not only are we to weep over these people, we are to pray for those who have gone astray, those who have lost their way, family members, friends who do not know the Lord, who are struggling in sin, who are overtaken by temptation, who have made shipwreck of their faith because of sinful decisions. We have to pray for them. And we need to remember that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the bashing of the sinner. That's difficult for us. That's difficult for us. The text continues in verse 19. It says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. It says their end is destruction. It's, a, it's an interesting word that Paul uses, and it's intentional because if you'll notice back in verse 12, Paul talks about perfection, which, which we talked about last week, which means an eschatological goal, the place where we are all heading. And he was talking about the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that the word used here for the judgment that will fall on the enemies of the cross is the same form. It derives from the same root of that word perfection, both coming from that term telos or end. And so in other words, what, what Paul is getting at is that eschatological trajectories, they head in two different directions. 
One toward God and the other away from God. And he says that these particular people who walk the path of the enemy, it's not as though they don't have a religion, a system of belief, or even a God. It says their God is their belly. Whatever satisfies their physical urges. They glorify, or in other words, they shine a spotlight on. They promote the things that are utterly shameful. And ultimately, instead of conforming their minds to the person and work of Christ, they're conforming their minds to earthly things, to this present age rather than the age to come. There's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot to talk about here. Paul's warning to imitate him and to embody the cross-shaped nature of Christ is something that every generation of the church needs to rediscover. Every era has a message of salvation that conflicts with the message of the gospel. And our era is no different. I always say that if it comes up in the text, I'm going to talk about it, so here goes. Belly. In Greek, it's koilia. It's a fun word. While it literally means the physical organ, the stomach, that we all possess, it also refers to fleshly desires and appetites, namely food and sex. The second term that shows up is aiskune, which is shame, another fun word. It refers to that which is disgraceful, that which brings dishonor. This term also carries with it the idea of sexual immorality. One of the loudest Conflicting messages of salvation being heralded in our culture today is the message of what one theologian, Carl Truman, refers to as expressive individualism. I don't think he coined that term, but that's not really important for the moment. I have a slide, and it defines what he means by expressive individualism. He says expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core, and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. And anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. In other words, you do you, right? And, and we, we are all familiar with that phrase. And if you're younger in this room, you are overwhelmingly familiar with that phrase. You do you. And basically what Truman is saying is that whatever I believe about myself and whatever I believe is best for me is true and must be upheld by others. And if you do not uphold it, you are evil. And so what this means is that no longer is anything external able to determine what is right or wrong, but rather we become our own gods. We worship ourselves. What we want is ultimately the code or law that we live by. This is the opposite of what the cross calls us to, to radically and sacrificially love others and God above ourselves. And so when Paul talks about those who walk as enemies of the cross, he defines them as those who worship their own fleshly desires and, um, and appetites, who promote and celebrate that which is shameful, and who conform their mind, their entire way of being, to the pattern of this world. And so if, one, if one's God is their belly then they are worshiping themselves. 
their own appetites, their own desires. And this very much defines who we are as a society today, does it not? We're consumers by nature, especially in the West. We love food. We consume it. We consume media. We consume pornography. We consume whatever sexual desire we might possess. And not only does this show up in society, but it shows up in the church when we make certain claims about God telling us something, yet we're never sifting that through the scriptures or wise counsel. And so we've become very much the air we breathe, expressive individualists. Paul specifically in this passage tackles the desires of the flesh. He's not saying that food, sex, or physical enjoyment are wrong in and of themselves, but what he is saying is that there is a way to engage in these things that are good and glorifying to God, but there's also a way to engage in these things in a way that removes God from the equation. And so, right, food is good. And it's meant to be enjoyed. And there are even times where we should feast and celebrate with it. But if food is something that defines us, if we abuse it, if we are what the Bible calls gluttonous, then we are called to repent and reorient our lives around the person and work of Jesus, the master story. Drink is good. In fact, Paul tells Timothy to have a little wine for his stomach. But in the same way, if it is abused, if it is used as a means to cope or escape, then we are called to repent and reorient our lives around the person and work of Jesus, the master story. Sex is good, and it's meant to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. However, it is not what defines us. And if we are allowing ourselves to be defined by it, if we are abusing it, using it outside the, boundary, the boundaries of what God has established, then we are called to repent and reorient our lives around the person and work of Jesus, the master story. The gospel message of Western civilization tells us that if you feel it, if you want it, and as long as everyone is on board with it, then you should have it. And to argue otherwise is to be anathema or accursed. And too many of us, because we are inundated with it through every form of media, have believed in this gospel message, have entrusted ourselves to this gospel message. And so Paul, through tears, implores us to imitate him, to imitate Christ. Why? so that by any means possible, we might attain the resurrection from the dead. See, eternity is at stake. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what Paul is trying to lay out for us. And I'm always, I'm always a little, little, little nervous with these types of sermons because I don't want to sit here and heap shame on anybody. What I want to do is I want to show you the better path, namely the person and work of Jesus. Cheryl read this morning that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Literally, he is the path that we are to walk on, which means we have to repent of all the other paths that we are dipping our toe in. We just have to. And there's so much 
temptation that we are bombarded with. And we have to fight tooth and nail to resist temptation and follow Jesus. And you know what's beautiful? God gives us the grace to do it. And he gives us the power to do it. The Holy Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is in us. And so when he says, imitate me and and keep your eyes on those good examples, he tells us, because I don't want to cry over you too. I've shed too many tears. Fight the good fight of faith. Repent of sin and come to know Jesus. And if you know Jesus and you're dabbling in these paths, repent, put it away, and return to me, he says. But that's good news. That's good news. This was a tough passage to work through all week. It was, because it's dealing with heavy stuff that that we don't necessarily, we don't like to talk about it. Or we like to talk about it in a way where, where there's an us and them. It's like, oh, well, we're not like them. But we are. We've all been affected by this expressive individualistic gospel that's being preached day in and day out on every form of media. Every song you listen to, every show you watch. And we gotta fight. We have to fight because we are called to be different. It says in the, follow, in the next verse, verses 20 and following, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so verse 20, it starts out with this word but, but that's a bad translation. It should be for as well because it's the same word, that word gar. And so what Paul is doing us, he's giving us two reasons to imitate him. He's saying, imitate me because I don't want you to imitate those people because their end is destruction and I don't want to cry over you too. And also imitate me because our citizenship is in heaven. It's not of this world. And notice that it says in verse 19, It says, their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul is putting these two things right next to each other. He's like, like, see, there's these people that I weep over, that I've known, and that possibly I've baptized, and, and their minds are set on earthly things. Don't follow them. Follow our example, because your citizenship is not in earth. It's in heaven. It comes from heaven. It comes from a kingdom that is not of this world, and therefore, it it requires something of you. It requires a, a, a life that is marked by the cross of Christ, that is marked by the holiness of God, that calls us out of sin and temptation, that calls us out of Egypt because we are no longer sitting in the house of slavery. We talked about this. God has rescued us from the house of slavery. And he says, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven. It's the same word that came up in chapter 1, verse 27. And it's the word that has defined our entire sermon series, citizens of heaven. A few things to help us fully understand what Paul's getting at. If you remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. We talked about that in week one. To be a Roman colony 
meant that if you were on Philippian soil, then you were on Roman soil. And see, the goal of a colony, and for all the citizens who lived there, was to extend the rule and reign of Rome, to make Caesar's name known throughout the world. And so I think what we often do when we say we're citizens of heaven, we have this idea, well, we're just passing through. And one day I'm going to be in heaven, and that's that. But it's interesting because you know what citizens in Roman colonies didn't do? They didn't long to go back to Rome. It's not what they did. What they longed for was to extend the rule and reign of Rome where their feet were planted. And so far too often, I think, us as Christians, we have this escapist sort of mentality when it comes to what it means to be a Christian. I'm a citizen of heaven, so I'm getting out of Dodge. Nah. You're a citizen of heaven. This is a heavenly colony. So get to work extending the rule and reign of King Jesus. That's what it means to be citizens of heaven. We're not trying to run away from this world. We're trying to extend the rule and reign of Christ in this world. We do that by loving God and loving neighbor. We do that by repenting of sin and being marked by the holiness of God. We do that as we are shaped by the cross of Christ, marked by the master story that we see laid out for us in Philippians chapter 2. We don't do that by running away. And there is a temptation to run away. We turn on the news and we are inundated with fear-mongering like no other. Every single corner that you turn, if you watch the news, there's a devil waiting for you to kill you. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe firmly that the devil roams around the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But guess what? The Holy Spirit of God that indwells you is more powerful than the devil that roams around the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we don't have to walk in fear. In fact, God tells us on numerous occasions throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, fear not. Fear not. And what's interesting, if we, if we go back into the Old Testament and we look at the story of, of the spies entering the promised land, there were a few spies that were like, we can't go there. It's crazy. There's giants everywhere. Terrifying. Run. Run for the hills. They, they weren't dealt with too kindly by God. We're not called to run away from the world. We're called to step into this world with the kingdom of God, with the message of hope that is from God, with the love and mercy and, 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 and generosity and humility that marks that kingdom. Why? So that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's the point. That's why, we, that's why we're here. That's why God has made us image bearers. I mean, we've talked about this, right? The whole idea of being made in the image of God. We talked about how, how in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, he set up the garden, and he set it up in a way that it was a temple. And what did he do in that temple? He placed the image of God in that temple. Why? Because in the ancient world, whenever there was a temple, what people did is that they would place an image of their God, an icon in that temple, so that everyone can see what their God was like. But what God did in his holy temple. In fact, in the temple in the Old Testament, after the garden, there are no images of God. 
Because the priest was there. And guess what? He's the image of God. And in the garden temple, Adam and Eve were the image of God. And in the temple that extends throughout all of creation, because in Christ we are the temple, we are the image of God. And so we are called to show the world what God is like. That's what it means. That's such good news, and that's such a high calling, and it's so beautiful. That's good news. That's what this whole thing is all about. That's what it means to be followers of Jesus. That's what it means. We're citizens of heaven, marked by the master story of King Jesus, extending the rule and reign of Christ wherever we go, not in fear, not in fear, but entrusting ourselves to the person and work of Christ. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's going to be nerve-wracking at times. And we might be afraid. And that's why we have one another. We can look to people who have, 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 have walked this path before us. I got three kids. I, I sometimes don't know what I'm doing a lot. And so I ask people's advice. How do I deal with this? How did you deal with that? Your kids seem like they're doing great. What what'd you do? And I get advice because I don't know. And that's the beauty of this, this community of faith, the church. We have one another. It truly is family. And so we don't need to be afraid. We need to, we need to exercise faith. And, and I'm literally preaching to myself right now because, because my kids are getting older and it's scary. I, I don't know. I, I want them to love Jesus. I just baptized two of them a few weeks ago. I just want them to walk with Christ. It's all I want. I don't care about anything else. I mean, I love you guys, but I want them to walk with Jesus. That's all I want. And so, yeah, I, guys, I'm going to ask you for help, especially some of you older folk. I'm going to ask you for help. Lee, I'm going to ask you for help. Jolie, Tim, guys, I'm going to ask you for help. So I'm going to ask you guys for help. Scott, Vivian, I'm going to ask you guys for help. But that's what we're here for. We're here to lift one another up. This entire passage, because I just went off on a tangent. This entire passage is about our calling as followers of Jesus, as citizens of heaven. We're called to stand firm in the good news of the kingdom. To embody the cross of Christ by sacrificially loving and neighbor above ourselves. To live in a manner that reflects the kingdom of heaven by putting off the conflicting messages of salvation that preach expressive individualism and put on the message of Christ, which is the message of self-giving love and sacrifice to be imitators of those who have gone before us, who have lived lives of holiness and love, to ultimately be imitators of Christ ourselves so we can say, follow me as I follow Christ. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own gain, but took on the form of a slave. The gospel of the kingdom, which provides for us the path to citizenship in heaven, tells us that this life is not about us, it's not about every desire and whim that we might have, but rather it is about loving God and loving neighbor. It is about repenting of our own thoughts and ideas about the world and submitting to the mind of Christ. It's about showing the world what God is like, even if they don't particularly like what they're looking at. 
And we're called to do that with love. Because as I've said and as I will continue saying, the kindness of God leads to repentance. The passage close, closes, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, and whenever that, that word shows up, you know we're kind of heading towards the main point. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, he says, stand firm this way, thusly, right? The way we just talked about. Stand firm that way. Stand firm that way by patterning your life after the master story of King Jesus, by modeling your life after those who have gone before you, who have been faithful, who've walked with Jesus faithfully. Stand firm. And like I said, I'm preaching to myself because I too need to stand firm. You too need to stand firm. We corporately need to stand firm. And you know what happens? You know what happens? Our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. One day we stand before God on the shores of new creation. One day we will be made like him completely. Our eschatological trajectory will be fulfilled. And the kingdom of heaven will come down. We go up so that we can come down again. Because the stuff of earth matters. It matters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. We thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, for the example set forth in your word, for the power that you have given us so that we might walk faithfully. Help us, Lord. Help us to repent of sin, to be more and more like your son Jesus, to love you, to love our neighbor, to love even those neighbors who, who might not appear so lovable, Father, that we would step into their world with the good news of King Jesus, Lord God, extending his rule and reign wherever we go. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.